good morning, everybody. I, I've got to admit, the first service I started feeling a bit flat. I think the aircon came on a bit late, so I was trying to think how can I how can I start this with energy, and fiddling with my computer is not not that thing. What is that thing though? Like I'm one of those people at a conference or you know a, a PD that people who present have these little things that they make you do like turn to the person next to you and say your favorite cheese or <laughs> and as an introvert I go oh but does it work for some people that stuff like no <laughs> turn to the person next to you and say God is expanding your Bitcoin portfolio um, <laughs> Turn to the person next to you and say, if God didn't tell you to limit your exposure to Chinese real estate, he should have. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Why? Like, yeah. Okay, let's do the actual thing now. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk to you about a few people that you may or may not have heard of, and, and, and that is how we're going to connect. Um, <laughs> The energy in the room is going to go through the roof when you look at this guy with a sword. Um, so we're continuing to look at Revelation. We're beginning chapter 2. And this is where uh, we, we, we read sort of specific letters to specific churches in the area that we would now call Turkey. But anyway, this guy... This guy uh, is called St. Martin of Tours and he was a 4th century church leader in France... And he's kind of a, a big deal. He, he, I mean, you have to be a fairly big deal to get made a saint. Um, but he did a lot for the church in France in the 4th century. Um, but one thing that he was, like, talking a lot about, which I'll talk about in a moment, is that um, he talked a lot about the Antichrist. Uh, and he was absolutely convinced that he was a contemporary of the Antichrist that the book of Revelation talks about. Fourth century, he was like, the Antichrist is alive now. It's all going to be revealed. Another guy who's maybe not as good looking as Martin of Tours is this guy, um, Thomas Munzer. And he was a German, uh, like sort of Protestant reformer. And there was this big, probably second only to the French Revolution in terms of European revolutions and revolts. He was involved in leading this thing called the German Peasants Revolt and it was really about the fact that they weren't that happy anymore once the Re Reformation had started that they had Catholic government so they tried to to sort of cast off the Catholic government from Germany. So this is the 16th century and um, he ended up dying uh, with 6,000 other people. Uh, he was executed for, for doing that to the government. And um, it was unfortunate because he'd made a lot of predictions about the fact that they were living in the very tribulation uh, that, that Revelation speaks about. So the very end of the age, Thomas Munzer said, it's now. And then he died and 400 years later, he was not so right. Uh, another guy who also is amazingly handsome uh, this is an early Baptist leader called Thomas Helwis. And he was in trouble with James, King James I of England, um, who was a Catholic, uh, because Thomas was like, we should be able to sort of have 
freedom to choose uh, how we express our Christianity. Um, and he was absolutely adamant as well that the persecution that he and his contemporaries were suffering at the hands of King James I constituted the tribulation that we read about in the book of Revelation. What do these three have in common? They have in common uh, something that lots and lots of Christians have had in common over the age, and that is they really suck at predicting when the end of the world is. Um, lives dedicated to understanding this book, again, as I've said before, what chance do we have of understanding it if saints can't understand it? But, I mean, they're not alone, right? People have just consistently gotten this thing wrong. What does the book of Revelation have to say about the how and the what and the when of when it's all going to go shebang? And um, I was thinking, as I was doing a bit of research for this, uh, just looking at how Christians have got it wrong through the... And boy, there's, there is so many examples of how we've got it wrong. Um, one that kind of uh, appeals to me, classically American, during the First World War... Um, there were plenty of sort of preachers, teachers, end-timey kind of uh, evangelists and whatnot in the United States. They were pretty adamant that when the book of Revelation talks about, you know, the threat from the east, these ungodly kingdoms from the east, that that was the Ottoman Empire, which was involved in the First World War. They were allied with Germany. The thing that really appealed to me about the fact that Americans thought that the Ottoman Empire was the evil empire from the east is that what is the ottoman empire now we've been talking about it already this morning turkey where are the churches that john's revelation is written to they're in turkey so that there's a turn up for the books unexpectedly you are the people you should look out for maybe just a little bit more to the east the next town <laughs> to the east second world war of course it was japan it's changing all the time we get it wrong we get it wrong. And, and part of that is, I think, pretty natural in that we just read the Bible and, and in faith it's about us, right? Um, for Americans, I can understand them thinking that, you know, in some ways they're the end of history and um, the most important place in the world. Empires do that to you. <laughs> if you're at the centre of an empire, of course, you think it's the most important thing that's ever happened, it's the most important place that's ever happened. But the thing is, it changes over history. And so um, we've just got to be aware of the fact that maybe it's not always all about us. And there's some really common advice that comes to Christians when we think about how to read the Bible and make sure we don't do this thing uh, where we misunderstand it um, and we think it's all about us. And this advice looks like this. And maybe you've picked this up over the years here at Cornerstone. It's about trying to work out what the passage that we're reading, the bit of the Bible that we're looking at, says to them first. The them being the original audience of the book that we're reading. The book of Revelation, we're going to see again this morning that the original audience were some churches in Turkey. And it's once we've done our best to establish what the book might be saying to them that then we can begin to think about what it might be saying to us. And, you know, I think it's useful to think of us in the broader sense, um, not just think of us as 21st century Australians, but think about 
us as the church, the people of God, through history. Because wouldn't it make sense if the book of Revelation didn't just make sense to people in the first century and people at the very end of history, but that the book of Revelation could speak to all of the church through history? That's the way that we would hope that the Bible would work. So once we've thought about what it might mean to us, that could be the local church, but also the church through time, then we can have a crack at thinking about what this book might be saying to us individually, to the me's in the room, to the you's and the me's. Makes sense, doesn't it? So, this is the part of the world that is the them. Um, And we've looked at this map before, and John is writing from Patmos there, and this is amazingly logical, almost as if this happened in history. Uh, The letter that first gets addressed is to the church in the city of Ephesus. And um, what's happening in this letter uh, that's specifically to the church at Ephesus is is probably common in a lot of letters. Uh, There's a bit of encouragement, you're doing this well, and then there's a bit of The word that came to my mind was admonition, but nobody says that. Um, So, like, there's a bit of telling off or warning. Hey, here's what you've done well. Here's what is a little bit problematic. And as a teacher who's marking at the moment, I know this move because as I would mark Zach's paper, I'd scratch around for all the things that he did passably or better than that just to uh, make sure that I didn't get reported for writing entirely in red and saying nothing positive. Zach, I really, you spelt your name right at the top. (laughs) Zeke, sorry, Zeke. (laughs) What mark are you going to give me right now, Zeke? I'll give you a B plus. (laughs) I'm not deserving of that. Sorry, Zeke. (laughs) There was some irony in that. Uh, Thanks, Zeke. Uh, B plus, I'll take that. And then, so you've done all this right, and then the pivot, actually, here's the big problem uh, with what you've submitted, Josh, calling Zeke, Zach. Anyway, onwards. So let's begin to look at this section that addresses the church in Ephesus, particularly to the angel of the church. So this is chapter uh, chapter 2, verses 1, to the end of the church in Ephesus, right... These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. So that's a scary picture of Jesus that we've looked at in the past. And here's the them, right? It it orients us towards the them straight away. Now, the subtitle in your Bible would just say to the church in Ephesus. That wasn't in the original text. That's the editors of the Bibles that you're reading trying to make your life less rather than more complicated. But I know that here at Cornerstone, we like it complicated. And even if I didn't address the fact that, strangely, this is addressed to an angel, not to the church, that you guys would be thinking about it and you'd ask me about it. So I'll just quickly make a comment on why this is addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus, because, you know, that is weird. Um, we talked a couple weeks ago about how there's this picture of the menorah in the holy place, the seven branches of which have a light on top, which represents the church in this vision that John has. And Jesus, scary Jesus, this Jesus, 
don't think of him like that, um, has seven stars in his hands which represent the seven angels for the seven churches. One of the things that John's doing here is he knows there's a lot of Jews in the church in Ephesus and he is doing this thing which I talked about before with reference to Biggie Smalls because I know you all love East Coast hip-hop. Um, paying his Jews. So in a lot of African-American uh, music culture, there's this phenomenon of paying your Jews. Biggie Smalls famously has James Brown sampled in some of his hip-hop, and it's not just because it sounds good, though it does sound good. It's because the notorious B.I.G. is saying, I am doing something in a genre here. As an African-American man, I'm summoning something of what James Brown represents. And even though my music doesn't sound like James Brown, if you want to, want to understand my hip-hop, you have to first understand the soul of James Brown. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament prophetic tradition, there was this genre called apocalyptic, and we've talked about that a little bit before, where there's a special way of writing that says God is revealing something here. And Old Testament prophets didn't really have direct encounters with God for some significant reasons, partly because God, the God of the Old Testament, is like unable to be captured as an image. So when they would have an encounter with God, it was there was a messenger, there was an in-between. And interestingly, the Greek word angel that is used in Revelation here simply means messenger. So John is kind of saying, in the same way that your God gave you apocalyptic messages through an angel, something is happening here. Now, I don't think that means that there wasn't an angel. I just think it means that John's kind of going, hey, there's a genre at play. You should understand what I'm going to say in this particular way. To the extent that we might wonder what it looks like for a church to have an angel which is going from the holy place to the church and carrying messages and so forth, isn't it true that God's word isn't like an email that gets lost in our inbox, in our junk box? But God's word is embodied. <laughs> People bring it. Graham said the best things that God does wrapped in people. God's word is like uh, animating and present and perhaps in the way that it is animating and present and real and connected, it, is, it, it comes through a being like an angel. Anyway, it's complicated all that to say that there is a prophetic word coming to the church in Ephesus that is going to reveal something. Not that way, that just keeps slipping into my imagination. Um, but more like this way. So the seven churches are like the seven branches of the lampstand, which is in the holy place with God. John's saying, again, there's a picture. No matter what you're going through in your circumstance there in Turkey in the first century, there's this sense in which you're with God and in the holy of holies where he dwells, He's aware of you and his light and presence is with you as you're with him. Let's keep going. So this is a letter, this bit of it specifically to the church in Ephesus. He says, 
I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And this was like legitimate, you have done this well, because Ephesus was a tricky place to be a Christian in the first century. And maybe if you've read the the book to the Ephesians or Acts, you would know this. But there was lots going on that made it tricky. One was there's this really pervasive sort of uh, pagan culture in Ephesus. This is a really significant temple, if you look at it, even by today's standard. It's a temple to the goddess Artemis. And it was sort of like the town cult and so the practices that went along with that temple some of them we would consider you know morally questionable in our time filtered through the whole city and they were coming in to the church there's a picture of artemis um, as she was um, imagined in in ephesus and you can see there's some sort of fertility stuff going on there so often that came with some sexual practice that Um, would seem pretty iffy to us as Christians. If it wasn't enough that there was one big temple cult to a pagan goddess in Ephesus, there was actually two cults to emperors, two temples for emperors of the Roman Empire. And this is just because they're ruins now. Um, The plans for one to uh, Diocletian, who was the emperor at the time that John is imagined to be writing this book. And... You can imagine that if the whole town kind of revolves around a temple that says the emperor is God, um, Christians who weren't willing to say that and would instead say Jesus is Lord would run into some problems. So where John's revelation, the letter to the Ephesians says, you've done good deeds, that's a good thing. in the culture that you live in. Uh, You've worked hard and you've persevered for Jesus. Well done. That's legitimate praise. You've not tolerated wicked people where there has been practices of sexual immorality and exploitation and all that stuff that are just woven into the fabric of Ephesian life. You've done well to keep your community pure of that so that people would know that Christians don't do that to one another. You've tested and identified false prophets. Lots of people were going around claiming to be able to speak for Jesus. And the church in Ephesus, it seems, faced some real challenge with false leaders and false teachers coming in their midst. And they were able to go, no, that's iffy. You can stay outside. We're not accepting your teaching. And sort of as a, as a, as a wrap-up, they persevered and they endured hardship for Jesus' name without growing weary and so this letter from john to the angel written by from jesus to the angel written by john gives the church in ephesus a big tick for all these things we'll keep going verses four to six yet i hold this against you this is where it pivots right (laughs) this is the big problem with your essay zeke Um, i hold this against you You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. 
but you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I'm just going to let you know, I'm not going to talk about the Nicolaitans at all. I've probably got 50 commentaries and nobody seems to know who they were, so that's convenient. We're going <laughs> to skip over that. Seems like they were a group that was teaching something that didn't line up um, with the gospel that the apostles received. Um, but there is some interesting stuff here for us because the letter identifies a big problem for the church in Ephesus. It says that you have forsaken the love which you had at first. This, if everything else they were doing got a tick, this gets a big cross. And there are real consequences we see for getting this wrong. The letter also says, if you do not repent of forsaking the love that you first had, I, the Lord, will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. So if the lampstand was the picture of the fact that despite what the church was going through, its suffering, its persecution, the fact that um, they would declare Jesus as king and yet the emperor was so strong and so anti-God, despite their circumstance, they had assurance that they had a status in heaven with God in the Holy of Holies. And in fact, because they were a lamp, they were part of the menorah. They were like the presence of God in the world and they were the light of God in the world. If they were not going to repent of the fact that they had forsaken the love that they had at first, their light would be snuffed out. Their identity, as it were, as the true people of God in the world, would be snuffed out. They might be going about the business of being Christians there. They might be meeting together. They might be doing those good deeds that we read about. They might have great doctrine. They might have been persevering in the face of uh, difficult circumstances. But if they had not repented of the fact that they had forsaken their first love, Jesus says, you're not actually a real church. You're not really the people of God in the world. Your heavenly status as a branch on that lampstand in the holy place is gone. You're snuffed out. Big consequences. One less branch in the holy place. One less true church in ancient Turkey. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. What does this mean if it's so significant? If this is what the very identity of God's people hinges on, if he's saying to the church in Ephesus, if you don't have this, you've got nothing, what is it? What is the love that they had at first? You'll remember that John, who's writing this letter, has a deep understanding of who Jesus was and what he did. And that's one of the pieces of evidence that the tradition leans on to imagine that John, the revelator, is John the disciple, John the apostle. And so the thought that occurs to me is there anything in Jesus' life and teaching 
that can help us make sense of this line. If it's so important not to forsake the love that we had at first, what might Jesus have to say that could help us make sense of this? And of course, there is. And here we see in Matthew 24, Jesus' words, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this good news, this gospel of the king of love, the kingdom of God, will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So the forsaken love that they had at first is the gospel of the kingdom. And we've done a lot of work in this the last couple of years. The good news that God has come to reign in history through his son, Jesus, and that the power of this kingdom is self-sacrificial love, that God would lay down his very life to show the world his love and to purchase their his righteousness for them. G.K. Beale, a commentator we've touched on a little bit, helps make sense of this. Because I was like, does this make sense? Can, can anyone back me up? And he says this, of this very passage, speaking of uh, the love that they had abandoned, this idea is that they no longer expressed their former zealous love for Jesus by witnessing to him in the world. I'll just flash forward. Uh, it's intended to remind the readers, the last sentence, that their primary role in relation to the Lord should be that of a light of witnesses to the world. So the love that they had abandoned was their witness to the outside world. The thing that they had to repent of was that they'd lost touch with the fact that their primary role in relation to God should be a light of witness to the outside world about pointing to God's love, about pointing to what Jesus had done. Finish with verse 7 here. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This echoes something else that John said. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. To have victory, to eat from the tree of life, which is the presence of God, eternally available. We see all the way from Genesis 1 to Revelation, a picture of God's presence in the world. We see the tree of life represented by the menorah in the holy place. To remember and operate out of the mission of God in the world, his love for the world, gives us victory so that we can live with God. So what does all this mean for the them? I 
think it's hard to improve upon those words that Beale gave us. What is the point of this section of the letter to the church in Ephesus? John's saying to them that God says, you need to remember that your primary role in relation to God should be that of a light of witnesses to the outside world. I'm going to get the band up. We're going to take communion in a minute. This is something of a softball. Um, going through this process of establishing what the word meant for them is maybe a bit easier in this passage than it will be in some other sections in the book of Revelation because it so obviously says this is for that first century church in Ephesus. But I think it's really easy to see how this would apply to the us, right, as well. If we work out what it means for them and then we can begin to work out what it means for us as God's people in the world... think the answer is basically the same what does it mean for us not to abandon the love that we first had what does it mean for us to truly be God's people in the world to not have the light snuffed out means to remember that our primary role in relation to Jesus is that of a light of witness to the outside world. The thought that I want to lead us into communion with is what this might mean for you. What this might mean for me. The wonderful thing about being a part of the people of God is I can look around this room knowing so many of you and knowing your lives well and I don't have to scratch far below the surface to see your good deeds I know that there's people in this room that volunteer at schools and sporting clubs as a part of their sort of sense of mission to the world I know that lots of you are extremely generous Sponsoring children, giving to, to churches, to missionaries, different social development projects. I reckon you'd be good neighbours. Part of a community that gets a tick on this stuff. What a blessing. Likewise, one of the things that I think COVID's reminded us of here in Australia is that we're good at kind of getting together and getting through hard times. There's a persevering streak and I, I, I see that in the church. We, Whatever has been sort of thrown at us from the government and circumstance, you know, you guys have just gotten on with it and, and that's been such a blessing to me. good people in this room living living lives that don't oppress others morally 
morally righteous people. I think we're pretty good at doctrine too at, at Cornerstone. I, I don't think we're sort of a community of believers that gets sort of swayed by whatever the, whatever the fashionable thoughts of the day are. I think I'm blessed to be a part of a community that really values truth and really wants to understand who Jesus is and what the scripture says about him. Blessed to be a part of a community that doesn't grow weary in these things. Your report card's looking pretty good (laughs) at this stage. The convicting thing about the passage that we've read this morning, though, is Jesus would say through John the same thing to the church in Ephesus, right? Then he says, unless you repent of losing your first love, (laughs) unfortunately, the flame snuffed out. The missions failed. The church in Ephesus isn't a true church. The people of God aren't present there. That convicts me because, you know, like I'm trying to make a go of all this stuff, being a good person, help, helping out, serving <laughs> for Jesus' sake, persevering, making sure I got the right ideas about God. And I can do all that without really necessarily tending the flame of God's love in my life. And so I think if this section of Revelation is saying anything to us this morning, it's saying go back to that love that you had. When you first realized how much God loves you, what he was willing to do for you through Jesus on the cross, could you take the elements and let's just get ready to, um, to take these together. So if you need to rip the um, plastic off, do that now.